Hello, this is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and welcome to Palliative Care Chat, the podcast brought to you by the online Master of Science and Graduate Certificate Program at the University of Maryland. My guest today is very interesting, Dr. Ed Torrey. Dr. Torrey completed his doctorate in osteopathic medicine at the Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine, followed by a residency in internal medicine at MedStar Union Memorial Hospital, where he was both chief resident and resident of the year. Currently, Dr. Torrey serves as the associate director of the MedStar Institute for Innovation, and he's the director of the Influence Center. Well, I think that's a pretty intriguing introduction. Good morning, Dr. Tori. How are you today? Good morning. Thank you for having me. I'm doing well. well. Super excited that you're with us today. So why don't we start with, I purposefully did not finish reading your bio. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got to be in this role in this Influence Center? Sure, sure. So um, I, like um, so many of my colleagues early on, um, were, was, as I was going through my medical training, um, I, I felt like I was reaching a point where I was burning out. So um, I think all of us reach that, that stage at some point, and usually we sort of emerge out of it and keep plugging along, and then it hits again, and then we keep plugging along. Well, for me, um, I started looking for an exit strategy. Um, I actually mm-hmm. tried to leave uh, medicine. Uh, I thought I had lost my love uh, of it. And, um, and I started a few online businesses. And when I did so, uh, you know, as a means to try to earn extra income, I realized I had to scale it. So I started learning marketing. So mm-hmm. while I was still going through my training, I was trying to learn uh, the discipline of marketing, and I would call up experts in it and ask if I could learn from them and have conversations with them and even visit some of them and, um, and started, you know, using that in my side business. But a side effect was that it had an impact on my relationships at work, my relationships at home. I started noticing improved rapport with patients, with social workers, case managers, nurses, um, even at home with my wife and kids. And I thought to myself, you know, what is that? I'm not, it's, uh, it's marketing principle. It's a marketing principle that I may be applying, but mm-hmm. I'm not marketing to my wife. Well, not usually. Sometimes I am. <laughs> um, but, uh, but it's not really marketing. What is it? And that's what started my sort of couple decade long quest of uh, studying uh, influence and rapport specifically and persuasion and body language and things like that. And so that's what led to a, my rediscovery of my love of health, wellness, health care, and patience, and, uh, because it got back to my why. And B, it led to this sort of career path of helping others learn the sciences, plural, and mm-hmm. arts, plural, of mm-hmm. influence and persuasion. That's very interesting. So as you know, our audience is hospice and palliative care practitioners and other people as well. But you mentioned establishing rapport. How can we use the skills that you have honed to build rapport with patients and families, but quickly and firmly? So how can we go from, hi, here's who I am, it's nice to meet you, to really getting that deeper talk or that deeper rapport? Yeah, that's a that's a great question, and it's an important one. Um, I would say first, I may have to explain a little bit about where I'm sort of deriving the answer from. Okay. Um, after, after studying marketing a bit, I went and studied other influence disciplines, mm-hmm. and some of those included, you know, the ones that most people think of and maybe even feel are a little dirty, like uh, sales and marketing and things like that. But then also studied under um, hypnotists, 
there's a group among the hypnotists called conversational hypnotists uh-huh. um, and hypnotherapists, uh, and then other disciplines as well that maybe we can cover later. But uh, specifically, when it gets to rapport, um, among the group of conversational hypnotists, they actually have a really interesting model for conversation in general. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it basically it starts with a greeting. You enter small talk. After the small talk or during small talk, you begin to establish rapport. Mm-hmm. Once rapport is established, you enter a period of deep talk. If rapport is established, you enter deep mm-hmm. talk. And that's where a lot of real therapy can begin or deeper rapport, better relationship kind of stuff can begin. Now, what's interesting about that group, the conversational hypnotherapist, is that they um, have accelerators for each of those phases. Mm-hmm. So in other words, you can jump through the greeting, through small talk, through rapport. They actually have a series of strategies called instant rapport strategies. Uh, mm-hmm. Some of them, you know, depending on who you learn from or talk to or read, uh, they have different terms for them. But essentially, they're all these sort of instant rapport strategies. So I'll give you one example of those. Um, And essentially, you can learn these on your own as you navigate life if you're observant. Mm -hmm. So so the basic principle behind them is anything that you do when you already have great rapport with somebody, Mm -hmm. that same thing may be used to induce rapport. So I'll Mm -hmm. give an example. Uh, when we greet somebody we haven't seen in a long time, we often raise our eyebrows. And so in in hypnosis, they call it the eyebrow flash. Mm -hmm. So we raise our eyebrows and say, oh, hey, Dr. McPherson, how are you? I haven't seen you in years. You know, what's been going on? So -hmm. if we already have rapport and then we see each other, we raise our eyebrows. Mm -hmm. Well, that is one of the instant rapport strategies. If you raise your eyebrows as you greet somebody, even Mm -hmm. if you're meeting them for the first time, Mm-hmm. Oh, hi, Mrs. Jones. I'm your palliative care nurse. It's great to meet you, you know, as that sort of thing. So when you raise your eyebrows at the mm-hmm. time of the greeting, I don't mean raise them and leave them there. That <laughs> looks, you know, a little freaky. Uh, and I don't mean raise them up and down like slimy. Uh, but I mean <laughs> raise them as you greet and smile, a genuine, uh-huh. authentic smile, uh-huh. uh, as you would somebody you already have rapport. It will help to establish rapport. That is crazy. Wow, that's so yeah. interesting. Try it. I'm telling you, try it from now on. Raise your I will. When you meet someone. And another thing is if, if you see, if you get good at um, uh, seeing micro expressions, which uh-huh. maybe we can talk about at another point, if you get good at seeing those, another thing to do is to mirror the exact micro expression that someone has the moment they see you. If you mirror it precisely, they won't know why, but they'll uh-huh. feel like you just click. So give me one so, example at least. You can't leave us hanging. Well, well, so, uh, well one time I was walking by a nurse. After I learned this skill, I was walking by a nurse in the, um, in the hallway and, uh, at the hospital I was working in at the time. And I knew her, but I never really talked to her in any sort of depth. And so as she walked by, she said, oh, good morning, Dr. Tori. And so I went, oh, good morning, Sherry. And I mirrored her exact expression on her face. So one, her eyebrow went up a little bit. Her mouth talked to the side a bit. I just did that exactly and mirrored her tone. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't in a mimicking way. Mm-hmm. It was subtle. And uh, she actually called me back about, you know, after we passed each other in the hall, called me back down the hall. And she just started telling me about her brother and the stuff that was going on in her life. I don't know. <laughs> it's just, it, was, uh, it was surreal. Uh, so I started practicing that um, more, and it 
you know, once you become unconsciously competent at something, uh-huh. all of a sudden you actually have to learn how to turn it off or else you won't get out of conversations. Mm-hmm. Wow. <laughs> so. So, I mean, I don't know if there are examples you can think of from the pain and palliative care hospice and palliative care world, but I have several examples that I can certainly share with you if maybe you could use them as illustrative examples. Sure, let's try it. Okay, so one I just wrote down is often we'll come across a patient who unbelievably will not tell their doctor or nurse or pharmacist that they're having pain. But we can see from observation that they really are having physical discomfort, but they deny pain. So how can we build that rapport and get them to be more truthful? Because probably there are some fears that are suppressing their ability to tell the true story. So what are your thoughts about that? Right. So that, that's uh, an important uh, observation. If you are able to detect it, Mm -hmm. then you are also able to mirror it a bit. So many times we hear, oh, you know, if you want to establish rapport with somebody, you match and mirror. Mm -hmm. That's true to a point. Um, It's actually, it's very true that when you have rapport, you already start to match and mirror. That's a, it's a, it's what we do when we have rapport. We match and mirror each other. Mm -hmm. If you do it intentionally, it can be, um, you know, if it's detected by the other person, it can actually break rapport. Mm-hmm. So, so sometimes you mirror the other person in a way that is subcon- that is beyond the conscious attention. So okay. if, you, if somebody crosses their legs and you immediately cross your legs, then that could be detected and be viewed as, is this person mimicking me? Wait a minute, I just mm-hmm. moved my arm and they moved their arm. So you don't do that. But what you do is you mirror their, their state if you if you detect that they're in pain, mm-hmm. if and you are an empath, empathic person, mm-hmm. when you empathize, actually feel it for that moment. When you mm-hmm. feel it, express it in a way with your body language, you know, or with your tone, or with uh-huh. your pace of speech. If you mirror what they're feeling, they will start to feel more comfortable with you. So. Um, now, let me just say this, that when you match and mirror somebody, what a lot of people don't describe is the next step. The next step after matching and mirroring is called pacing and leading. So once you match and mirror somebody and you establish rapport, you have it, and there's evidence because you're mirroring each other, you pace them to a new, you lead them to a new, better place. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, if you meet somebody who's angry or frustrated, you, you, ex, you experience anger and frustration too mm-hmm. for a moment. Meet mm-hmm. them exactly where they are. But mm-hmm. then anger and frustration is not a good place to be. So then slowly, after you, after you establish rapport, remove them to that new place. You know, nobody, anybody who's angry or frustrated, the last thing they want is somebody to walk in bubbly and, hey, hey, how are you? You know, mm-hmm. they... They want someone to experience what they're experiencing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so match that moment. It's not an admission of guilt. It's not an admission of a failure of the health system. If, you know, somebody's frustrated with, you know, the inability to get an appointment or get in touch with somebody or have someone show up to the house or, you know, maybe the thing was delayed, it's okay to mm-hmm. feel the frustration that they feel because, you know, we, we empathize with them. And, and, of course, this whole time, and necessary ingredient is authenticity. Mm-hmm. If you are not authentic, everything with rapport will fail mm-hmm. because p- when patients are vulnerable and when families are vulnerable, they have 
heightened authenticity detectors. Yeah, they can tell sense. when someone's full of it. And Being so, baloney. Um, full of baloney. Yeah, yeah. And if it clangs, it breaks rapport further than. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so anyway, so the first, so the, I guess the sh- the short answer is, meet them where they are with the uh, same emotional state. Okay. And yeah. do you use reflective statements uh, along with that? Like, yes. Like if somebody, uh, I can clearly tell you must have pain that's probably 10 out of 10, but you're terrified I'm going to make sure you take an opioid and you don't really want to do that. So, I mean, I can certainly imagine what it feels like to have pain that's 10 out of 10 and I'm not going to be all happy and bubbly, but then what does my conversation reflect? Okay, so well, that, that's a, a good question. Oh, this is actually a place. This is actually a minefield in a way. It's uh-huh. it's both high risk, high reward, if you reflect. So sometimes you instead of reflect, you echo. Mm-hmm. They're slightly different. They're you are saying or expressing expressing the same thing back. Um, so for example, if, if they say you know if you ask how was your day, and they say oh it's just ugh, okay. So a little later, you say, you know, when you're talking about it, you say, you know, when you're feeling, uh, what, what, what's worked in the past to get away from that or to improve uh-huh. or, you know, so you, you echo what they said uh-huh. um, because the reason it's a minefield is if you make a statement that's not true, uh-huh. you will break the rapport. So sure. if you say, oh, you must be experiencing ABC and they're not experiencing ABC, then you that actually essentially you don't get them because mm-hmm. actually what they meant was or what they're feeling is something entirely different. So mm-hmm. it's better to echo until you're sure. Okay. Also, when you're having that conversation, um, you can make some assumptions like, oh, uh, you know, oh, the, wow, that must be really difficult to get up and go to the restroom then, right? Okay. So you ask a little more about something that you can, you can deduce as, probably very true for them and then let mm-hmm. them explain more mm-hmm. um i don't know if that makes sense but that's yeah yeah that's, that makes sense yeah well how about if it's something like okay so i'm a pharmacist and i'm always trying to talk people out of medically futile drugs but for example mm-hmm. often if i say you know this the, the, the patient has probably got several weeks left to live for example but the family is insistent because the doctor said we have to check the sugar every four hours because grandma's got diabetes and maybe give her a shot four times a day but you know that's that's really putting her more at risk for harm than than good and you're chasing your tail and it's uncomfortable to do that how do you build that rapport so that you can get them around to your way of thinking yeah so um well one thing is and actually this might get into something um, sort of some simple rules that we can use. Sure. Uh, one of the simple one of the simple rules is to remove objections early. Mm-hmm. Now it's worth talking about objections and something mm-hmm. else called limiting beliefs. It's worth mm-hmm. dissecting those a bit more. Um, remove objections early. The reason is that um, when we have a little voice inside of our heads that says, "Oh, this is." just a pharmacist, if mm-hmm. that's the voice inside of their head, mm-hmm. you have to remove that objection or else mm-hmm. they won't hear a word you say from then on. Right. Or if they say, my doctor walks on water, if that's their belief, uh-huh. then if you don't overcome that, but you, they won't hear anything you say afterwards. So right. a, lim- a, a limiting belief um, usually takes the form of um, I always, I can't, she never, uh, 
this place always, you know, these sort of statements. Um, I'm not good at math is a limiting belief that people mm-hmm. often say. I'm not good at remembering names, a limiting belief. The, the reason it's a limiting belief is because if you actually believe it, how much action are you going to take? Mm-hmm. None. Not much, right. So, right. So you have to, to overcome that limiting belief. So if somebody says, you know, um, uh, I'll come back to a palliative care example in a second, but, but an easy one is when you deal with genetics. Like mm-hmm. if people, so some, some people think genetics equals destiny. So um, if somebody says, I can't lose weight, it's genetic. Mm-hmm. Well, if you don't get bu- past that, they won't attempt to lose weight, right? There will be no attempt at doing it. So, um, so you could do that with, the, with questions, which are super powerful. We could talk about how ninja questions can be. Um, but, but you could say, you know, well, wait a minute, isn't your sister thin? Didn't she lose a lot of weight? Oh, well, she's a health nut. Okay, well, so if you were a health nut, and then pause, right, that you started to break down the limiting belief, and all of a sudden that possibility blindness becomes mm-hmm. like, oh, maybe I can see a different possibility. Mm-hmm. Um, it may not be one I want, but it's at least a different possibility, and you start to break away from it. So when it comes to, um, you know, patients, let's say, let's go back to the example of somebody, you know, thinking they need to take their shots because uh, <laughs> the doctor said, well, right. um, uh, Sometimes you can go back on that with questions. And questions mm-hmm. are, are, are really powerful. But saying something like, well, uh, did your doctor talk to you about what happens if, the, if you have, um, you know, if your sugar gets too low? Mm-hmm. Did they talk to you about that? Um, did they, you know, and then say, um, oh, well, you, and, and then that leads into another question, right? So, um, or it leads into another path of conversation that can lead you to where you want to go. But the point is, if you don't remove the objection, then, um, or, or at least start to address it, then um, you, you won't get very far. And one mm-hmm. of the best ways it, to remove an objection is to put it out there before they put it out there. Mm-hmm. Okay? So put it on the table first. Our tendency is to sort of, if something is there, we try to sweep it under the rug, like, oh, mm-hmm. you know. But, but don't do that. Instead, put it on the table and then take it off. Um, so, for example, I know, you, you, you know, uh, your doctor is an incredible physician. Uh-huh. I, I, I know this. I've, you know, worked with him, et cetera. Um, I, you know, and uh, I know five weeks ago he told you that this, this, was, a, this was a good thing. Um, but, you know, things have changed. And I'm sure if we talk to him now about blah, 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 you see, so you put it on the table and then take it off. You say, I know you might think you should take this medicine, but when things change and um, or you could also tell a story of Mm -hmm. a similar experience before with the same doctor Mm -hmm. right but where it had the outcome you Mm -hmm. want so tell a story about that person so remove remove their objection early is really important so you can't leave me hanging how would I counter somebody who says I'm not listening to you. you're just a pharmacist how am I going to take the legs off of that one Mm, that's a great. That's a great one. You actually the the ideal the ideal situation is to get there before the um, before the person ever brings up that objection. Uh-huh. So if there's a way you can know it ahead of time. Uh-huh. So um, for example, uh, there's there's lots of ways to attack that. One uh-huh. might be, uh, and and this is something we should all think about. There's stuff that happens before a conversation. Okay? okay. Before you even engage the person, so if this is at, um, if this is at a counter 
or if it's during an encounter, mm-hmm. there's this time before you actually engage them. Well, if you're on the phone or having a conversation with somebody and you can demonstrate your expertise mm-hmm. or that, uh, that somebody is calling you for that expertise, mm-hmm. you, can di- you can disarm it. So, for example, if you say, oh, uh, you know, let's say you're talking to a colleague, yeah, I was just talking to Dr. So-and-so. He had some questions or she had some questions about uh, XYZ medication, and I was advising her on how to uh, properly dose that, right? Mm-hmm. So if you have that conversation with somebody off to the side before actually engaging, it establishes that doctors call you for the advice, right? I see. Um, mm-hmm. So that, that's one way. Um, when it's very direct, um, that is actually uh, much more challenging, and I would say that's, that's that's where you have to focus on instead of going after what they just said, go mm-hmm. after a rapport. Mm-hmm. Because if they say that, the rapport isn't there. You, so you, you go after establishing rapport first mm-hmm. before trying to, to uh, combat that direct. Um, and my inclination would attack. be to use humor to say something like, oh, come on, this is not my first rodeo. Is that okay? Uh, uh, yeah, so humor, so humor um, is something that it, its power comes from its ability to break patterns. So, um, if you, so, if people have a pattern, it's sort of like the the, the thought of um, you know the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting mm-hmm. different results. That's right. a pattern. Um, the humor works by breaking patterns. So you uh-huh. think it's one thing, and then it's another thing. Okay. And so, whenever there's a pattern interrupt or a break in a pattern, that mm-hmm. is an opportunity to learn and an opportunity to mm-hmm. um, establish rapport much deeper. So, mm-hmm. but it's also a tricky spot. You better, you know, if you're, you know, I assume if you use humor now and then, you're good at reading the person who it's appropriate mm-hmm. to use humor with. Sure, sure. Uh, you can't do it inappropriately. Right. <laughs> that makes right. sense. So, yeah. you know, hospices and uh, hospitals, the patients either discharged from the hospital or the family after the patient's death, they get these surveys. And the surveys are, particularly in hospice, for example, the CAP survey is, uh, did the team communicate well with you? Did they help you manage your loved one's symptoms, for example? So you mentioned when you and I spoke previously, your six simple rules of engagement. You just shared one of them with us of removing the objections. Do you think you could go through those six? And thinking, yeah. we're not trying to be deceitful by any means, but we do want to form that, that warm relationship. And I have to tell you, hospice nurses are pretty awesome at doing this, uh, as yes, well as the aid. Families love the aid. So you want to run through your rules and maybe use that as an example? Yeah, sure, sure. So uh, first, the, the, the reasons for simple rules of, of influence is simple rules are um, ways of, you know, there's a tendency nowadays to script things or to put a lot of things into checklists. Mm-hmm. Well, the human-human interaction is dynamic. It does not belong in a checklist when you're dealing with uh, sort of emotions and rapport and things like that. That is, you are unique, the, the patient is unique, the setting in which you're interacting with them is unique, the time of day, the thing they recently experienced, all these things factor in. So mm-hmm. we use simple rules because if you have a simple rule or a simple guide, that, that guideline will help you implement it in your way. Mm-hmm. In other words, if I try to if I try to 
do what everyone else is doing, and it's not coming from me as an authentic uh, action, um, mm-hmm. uh, then it, that will be detected. That, will be, that, that, that lack of authenticity will be apparent. So mm-hmm. use simple rules and then have people um, apply them in their own way. So the first of those simple rules is to manage your state. Mm-hmm. This, by far, is the most important piece of influence. And in fact, all of influence, or most of influence, can be bucketed into three main things, states, frames, and patterns. Mm-hmm. And the state that people are in, yourself first, is absolutely central. So okay. if, you are, if your emotional state, your mood, if you are in a state that is optimum for the interaction, you will have better rapport, you'll get a better history, you'll, the, that person will be more honest with you, they will, um, you know, they'll respond to your suggestions and your uh, advice uh, in, in a more appropriate way. But the reason it works is because when your, your word choice, your body language, all of that stuff, your tone, your inflection, mm-hmm. all of that is state dependent, right? Mm-hmm. Even the stories you have available to you in your memory are state dependent. So Mm -hmm. if you are angry because you just had an argument with somebody and you walk in and now you're going to try to have a conversation about, you know, um, uh, you know, some other topic, the anger that you're feeling now will impact your word choice and your body language. If you just looked at your phone and somebody sent you a funny text and then you go in to have an end of life discussion, your body language is going to be clanging with the mm-hmm. situation. Yeah. So the key is to manage your state. So some people manage their state with meditation. Some mm-hmm. people manage their state with prayer. Some people manage it by, by having photos of their loved ones on their desk or in their wallet. Some people manage their state by watching a, a YouTube video. Um, or in, in my case, what I do is I use a doorknob as a trigger. Okay. Every time I touch a doorknob, I remind myself, that somebody is on the other side of that door. And I need to be in the optimum state for that encounter, whatever that Mm -hmm. is. If it's a meeting, it's my wife after a long, hard day at work, or it's whatever. I have to manage my state before I walk in there. So a classic example is when I was walking in the hospital, walked by the nurse's station, and and somebody says to me, watch out, Dr. Dory, his wife's a doctor. She's been at the nurse's station all night. She's called patient advocacy. She's called the hospital president, and da-da-da, right? That prep in air quotes, is uh-huh. actually setting me up for a battle. Because if I go in there believing any word of that, uh-huh. if I go in there thinking this person is confrontational or what have you, my body language is going to say so. My uh-huh. word choice, my tone, you know, all that stuff is going to say so. So manage your state is absolutely key. It's okay. essentially get your game face on. Uh-huh. If you're going to play football, before you go out there onto the football field, you get your game face on. You're not reading Hallmark cards, you know, to my dear wife. You know, you're getting ready to tackle somebody. So go mm-hmm. get ready to tackle somebody. If you're going to have an end-of-life discussion, get your game face on. Get into the state that is optimum for that. Then mm-hmm. all the other stuff, and you don't need to read all the body language books and all the, you know, intonation and cadence and pace of speech. You don't need to study any of that. Mm-hmm. You just manage your state. So that's the most important one. That's why I spent okay. the most time on it. The others, we'll, we'll, we'll go through them quickly. Um, the, the second one, is make them comfortable. Mm-hmm. Now, keep in mind, simple rules are for you 
to do it in your way. Mm-hmm. So you make them comfortable in the way that you make people comfortable. If okay. you do it with light humor, go for mm-hmm. it. If you do it with, um, you know, a, a really empathic moment and sitting down, go for it. But we don't have to script that everyone sits down. Uh-huh. You do it in your authentic way. So you make them comfortable. Now, sometimes you might make them comfortable by saying, you know, Mrs. Jones, this is an awesome team. We're going to take great care of you. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you do it by saying, by, um, by making them comfortable, by getting them to talk about something they love. You see a picture on the wall when you go in for that visit, start talking to them about that. Oh, I see you have a grandson. Da, da, da. Talk to them about their grandson. You make mm-hmm. them comfortable. Once they're comfortable, then everything else flows. And essentially, another way of thinking about that, the first one is manage your state. Making them comfortable is manage their state. Mm-hmm. Okay? And, so, and by comfortable, I mean comfortable with the situation, with the environment, with the interaction. You know, essentially... Work on rapport. Mm-hmm. So your state first, then rapport, okay. then, the, the, then the rest. Um, the third one is remove objections early, which we mm-hmm. uh, mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, the fourth one is to move people with what already moves them. Mm-hmm. Move them with what already moves them. Now, th- this is an important rule because, um, you know, we in healthcare tend to focus on data, Okay. Yeah. And data is important. Data, evidence, logic, reason. It's important, but it's not necessarily how to move people. We move people with emotion. Motion mm-hmm. occurs with emotion. So mm-hmm. McDonald's has a formula. Change the moods first and the minds will follow. Mm-hmm. Okay? Um, that formula, most influencers work on that. If you change the mood first, the mind will follow. And how do you change the mood? You change the mood based on what, the, what already changes their mood. So an example of that would be, you know, if you're describing some cardiac thing to somebody who's a plumber, I would hope you'd be using plumbing analogies. Right. right? Well, the same thing goes. If you're, if you're talking to somebody about, um, you know, their, their heart failure and their quality of life, you might, t- you might talk to them in the context of what that means to them, what's important to them. If for them, the most important thing is for them to be able to sit through an entire football game without, you know, huffing and puffing or without having to, you know, get up and use the restroom, well, then mm-hmm. talk about it in that context, in okay. the context of the football game, not mm-hmm. the physiology, not the data, right? Okay. So use data to determine where you want people to go, like you want them to take that medicine or you want them to avoid that medicine because the data says so but you move them to that spot with emotion. Okay, so if I could offer an analogy, for example, I'm always yapping about stopping the dementia drugs and someone admitted to hospice who is has very severe advanced disease. So I can talk about the data all day long saying it's not helping, it's dropping the heart rate, she's at risk for falling. But what would move the adult daughter would be more, you know, this medication causes so much nausea and you're knocking yourself out making these amazing meals. I would love to see her be able to eat these, these awesome meals you're making. Is that an example? That is, that is an example. Yeah, move them with what already moves them. And that, that's okay. what would move her, right? Um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, a, another thing that would move her is getting her to answer a question that's rhetorical. Like, could you imagine what it's like to sit there with all that nausea? I imagine mm-hmm. that, you know, I imagine that, that affects our ability to sleep. And haven't you ever not had enough sleep and been like, 
mm-hmm. not had your wits about you, etc. Mm-hmm. So asking questions also is another way. When they answer their own question, uh, that moves them also okay. when they think okay. it's their idea. Uh-huh. So move people with what already moves them. Typically it's emotional, not always. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're talking to clinicians about data, that's okay because sometimes that's what moves them. Mm-hmm. Um, but in general, uh, move people with emotion. For, for the clinician, um, data is emotional at times, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that's okay. Uh, so use it then. Okay. Uh, yeah. So um, the, the next one is to remark about the remarkables, and this is especially important for teamwork. Um, and uh, nurturing relationships between others. Remark about the remarkables means essentially spread good gossip. Mm-hmm. So it, let's say you're a palliative care aide and you are about to, uh, you know that uh, somebody is coming to visit later, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the palliative care nurse is coming, and you know who it is, and you know you happen to think they're highly skilled or have an awesome personality. If that's the case, say it. You say, oh, you know, John is coming, and he is an incredible palliative care nurse. He, uh, you know, uh, if, if, you know, when my mother was sick, I, I ha- he was the one that took care of her. I've never seen anybody like this. You know, so set him up for success. Mm-hmm. If, the, if the physician's coming and, or they contacted some sort of subspecialist and she's incredible, say it uh, before they get there because mm-hmm. then you set them up for success. Um, also, if somebody says something good about somebody, here's the power in it when you remark about the remarkables, okay. is that um, when you say it, it feels good. Mm-hmm. When they hear it, it feels good. Mm-hmm. When they actually meet the other person, if they spread it, mm-hmm. that feels good for all parties involved. Right? Okay. So when that, when that palliative care nurse, John, walks in and hears that the aide the patient says, oh, yeah, you know, you know, they were just telling me how awesome you were and what incredible care you took of their mother. You know, that will make that encounter better for the caregiver, mm-hmm. right, and for the one being cared for. And, and it will improve your relationship with them. So wow, there is no reason, there's no re- yeah, this is like win, 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 win. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you remark about the remarkables for others. And then the, uh, the final one is to design out pain and design in awesome. Design, design is really important, and you, you experience this every single day of your life in multiple settings, but we just gloss over it. So if you've ever pulled on a door that was a push door, mm-hmm. that was not your fault. Mm-hmm. The door handle was designed poorly. The fact is, you shouldn't have to think about opening a door. But if you go and you pull on it, it's because the handle informed you that it's a pull door. So Mm -hmm. the same thing goes for all kinds of things in our lives. Uh, You know, the the number of, you know, it it could be any device we interact with, you know, where buttons are on elevators, for example. You might push the emergency call button instead of the actual floor button because Mm -hmm. of where it's located. Uh, it occurs in electronic records. You know, you you know, if you if it's designed poorly, it actually encourages error, uh, or it makes error more likely. Um, you know, so but the same thing goes for our encounters. If you where you are sitting, where you are standing, um, how you design that encounter, uh, it, it matters. So if you're about to have a heart-to-heart conversation with somebody who does not open up emotionally. Mm-hmm. You may need to design the encounter slightly differently. 
So I'll give you an example that would uh, that uh, I mean this this sound this has a little bit of a a, a gender thing associated with it. That is okay. that sometimes men don't open up. You know, there's there's always the example of the father who doesn't talk to the son, or mm-hmm. the this the the you know the clinician the male clinician that doesn't feel you know th- that clearly has an issue when his uh, his leader is a female or something. These are very real situations. And what happens, one of the, one of the things that uh, has become clear in a lot of um, influence circles is that if you design the encounter slightly differently, you make that other person, you put them at ease. So, for example, if you look at the male, the, let's say father-son, uh, they don't talk much. But you know what? They sit in front of that football game and they do have conversation. Or they go fishing and they do have conversation there. You know, what's, you know what's similar in both of those situations is that they're facing away from each other. Mm-hmm. They're not face-to-face. So some people don't do well with the face-to-face conversation. So right. in that case, you would just simply design your encounter slightly differently. If okay. they're on a couch, sit next to them on the couch and face away as you have the conversation. Uh-huh. They might be put more at ease. And the way to find that out is to become good at detecting comfort and discomfort, okay. rapport and lack of rapport. Mm-hmm. If you get, get, hone your skills at detecting when somebody is feeling comfortable and connected, mm-hmm. then you'll know when they're not. And mm-hmm. so that gets to a skill called calibration mm-hmm. or micro-calibration. <clears throat> Essentially, you know, a, a lot of times we think, oh, you know, I tried. I tried to do something and then it didn't work. So now... Um, oh, well, that didn't work, and then we walk away. Uh-huh. You don't do that in conversation, right? Mm-hmm. You, in conversation, you try again, and then you try again, and then you try again. So, um, so let, me, let me give an example. Um, you know, one time my wife sent me a funny video, uh-huh. and um, I, I shared that video with some colleagues, and, uh, and I was using it in my influence training. And somebody uh-huh. said, you know, that, that video kind of... Um, it was a conversation between a male and a female, uh, and um, and in it, she thought that the woman, you know, appeared to be, uh, you know, not intelligent. Okay, yeah. and um, and I and so she was offended by the video. And my first response was, um, you know, well, yeah. So my my wife sent that to me. She thought that was funny. Actually, that was a failed influence attempt. That didn't work with her. Uh-huh. That didn't move her. Right. So. I kept going. I said, you know, it's interesting that you thought that it makes the woman look bad. I actually think it's the opposite, you know, uh-huh. because in that conversation, the guy's trying to get the woman to do something, and she doesn't right. do it. So uh-huh. I said, well, let's look at it. From his point of view, he didn't accomplish his goal, and so I go through that, and that's what moves her. Conversations uh-huh. are like that. Interactions are like that. You tweak uh-huh. until you get it right. So in some influence circles, they call it microcalibration because they're always – a salesperson is always trying to get you – to the sale, right, mm-hmm. or to like mm-hmm. the product. A, uh, in seduction, they're trying to get you to, tweet, to make sure you're interested in them. If mm-hmm. they see signs of disinterest, they try something different until they see signs of interest. Mm-hmm. We should be doing the same thing but with comfort and rapport. Mm-hmm. Are they comfortable with us or not? If they are not yet comfortable with us, we need to try something slightly different, maybe move your position, maybe change your tone maybe mm-hmm. do something else. Uh, a quick example is one time I was seeing a patient 
And I said to him, Mr. Jones, we're going to get a chest X-ray. And he was leaving. Uh, he was ha- had had cardiac surgery. I said, I said, Mr. Jones, we're going to get a chest X-ray. Off in the corner of my eye, I saw his wife put her hand over her suprasternal notch, like just the just below her neck. Uh-huh. And um, that's a sign of you know discomfort. It's a sign of concern. Right. So I saw that through the corner of my eye. I turned. I turned to her and I said, Oh, it's okay. He's um you know he's uh, he just had heart surgery so there was surgery on his chest so it's just this chest x-ray is pretty routine we're just looking for positioning of things and stuff like that mm-hmm. and she said oh it's not that it's just that i'm parked in two hour parking and i didn't know how long <laughs> this would be right so the point is i detected the discomfort mm-hmm. i addressed it and even though i was wrong that's okay because mm-hmm. then she revealed why she felt that way okay you see? so it actually so so anyway my point is Get good at detecting discomfort and then design your encounters so that they are more comfortable for the person. I see. So that's where design comes in. Wow. Boy, yeah. I can tell you've put a lot of work into this. And you did assure me you're writing a book on this, right? Yes, I am. Yes. So we can all cite your book. And, yeah. yeah, well, I, I wish you would hurry up and do it because I'd really like to read it. <laughs> okay. And I'm not just trying to manipulate or micromanage you here. <laughs> Well, Dr. Tori, anything else you want to add? This has really been, it's so interesting talking to you. We could talk for three days. Anything else you'd like to end with? Um, I, I, would, I would end with uh, maybe uh, just asking everyone to evaluate how they use questions. Here's why. A question must be answered. Uh-huh. So, it, meaning in your brain, you cannot help but answer it. So if I asked you, how old are you now? Don't answer it. How old are you now? You answered it in your brain. You thought uh-huh. of the answer. Right. So your patients and their loved ones and your colleagues work the same way. Mm-hmm. So questions are powerful because they must be answered in their brain. Mm-hmm. But not only that, they direct attention. When you ask mm-hmm. a question about something, you direct attention. So if you're asking about pain, mm-hmm. you're drawing attention to pain. If you ask about comfort... You're drawing attention to comfort. That's a great point. Be careful. Be careful where you draw attention, and your That's questions. Great. Your questions can be super powerful. Um, also, when someone answers it, it's their own idea. Mm-hmm. They came up with it. So, okay. how you ask your questions will change the answers you get. So, change the way you ask questions. So, um, if I ask you, "Can you afford this?" That's very different than asking, "How might you afford this?" Ah, that's true. If I ask you how how might you afford this, you start thinking, oh, I could sell the stuff in my garage, I can finish that book, I can, uh, you know, sell the recording of this podcast, right? So (laughs) all of a sudden you have a bunch of ideas that come out of a question, whereas the other Mm -hmm. one shut you down, and it was a yes-no. So anyway, so the power of questions, I would just say for everyone, in addition to rapport, focus on rapport and managing your state. Also, pay close attention to your questions, Mm because your questions may... Uh, help or hurt you in your interaction. So as a hospice or palliative care provider, instead of me saying, how bad is your pain on a zero to 10, maybe I could use the scale that says, how much relief has this new analgesic regimen brought you? Yeah, exactly. Ask about, the re- ask about the relief. Ask about um, the comfort. Um, mm-hmm. even, even in terms of pain, um, you know, I would actually use, be careful about the words you use. Mm-hmm. Um, if you use pain, it may be different than discomfort uh-huh. for that person. And so discomfort, by the way, 
subconsciously also has the word comfort in it. Mm-hmm. So you can keep focusing on comfort, and that is a, sort of a better place to be. Um, mm-hmm. So how, how you ask your questions about it, you may say, um, you know, uh, are, are you, are you, you know, uh, I'm trying to think of a better way of saying this, but uh, you could just ask a question like, um, that, did that make you a, a little bit more comfortable? You know, oh, good, uh, good, right? good. I like that. So the moment they say yes, they commit actually uh, and will, they'll sort of, they'll focus on the improvement rather mm-hmm. than on where they are now. Um, it's sort of like, you know, if I said to my son, you know, don't jump on the bed, where does mm-hmm. his attention go? It goes right to, to jumping, jumping on, on the bed. bed. Mm-hmm. So instead, draw attention to, hey, why don't you, hey, that, that new book we got on dinosaurs, you know, why don't we read that book? Sit down on your mm-hmm. bed and read the book, right? So, mm-hmm. um, you know, get, draw the attention to the thing that you mm-hmm. want the attention the better behavior. to go to. Got it. Right. Well, Dr. Tori, you are the bomb. I think you're awesome. I I have so enjoyed talking to you for the second time now. And I very much would like to thank you for joining us on our podcast and and thank our audience. So uh, in wrapping up again, this is Dr. Lynn McPherson. This presentation is copyright 2018, the University of Maryland. For more information on our completely online Master of Science and Graduate Certificate program in palliative care or for permission requests regarding this podcast, please visit graduate.umaryland.edu forward slash palliative. Thank you. Thank you very much.